Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. With the McDonald's app, you can get your favorite thing delivered to your door. So if you were looking for a reason to skip washing those dishes you left in the sink, consider this a sign. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Right now, get $0 delivery fee with any purchase of $15 or more, only in the app. At participating McDonald's, minimum purchase excludes tax and service fees. Delivery prices may be higher than in restaurants. Other fees may apply. Not valid with any other offer, discount, or coupon. Hey, guys. Popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Welcome to Girl on the Gov, the podcast, breaking down politics as we know it and removing all the bullshit. <laughs> because politics needed a rebrand. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> we should do like a proper hello this time because I feel like from the hot dogs to the like, I don't even know what we did last week, but it wasn't proper. Welcome back to Girl on the Gov, the podcast, everyone. Hot dogs for all. Do you eat them with sauce? <laughs> oh, man. Well, we're back. We're back again. I am back in California. I made it out of New York, surprisingly COVID-free, and got out of the snow, which was nice, actually. I, I feel your pain now, Sam. 
see, now you get it. Like, I don't want you to ever suffer, but like, I'm glad you like, at least like, you know, when I'm complaining, you understand my complaint. Yeah, I learned my lesson. It's one of those things, like, don't get me wrong, like, when it's snowing out and it's all peaceful and like pretty and like nothing's happening, it's cute. It's gorgeous. Totally. It's like then when you want to do anything, and that's even in like COVID era. But you know what's so crazy is like, because of COVID and because of just being locked down, like we were still so excited to go outdoor dine, like in the snow. Like we sat outside in the snow and ate food. And that's so crazy. Like if you would have told someone a year ago that we would be looking forward to dining in 30 degree weather, you would have been just laughed at. But it's a genuine joy to be able to do that. It's just like, it's the little things, guys. I mean, it really is. I think that is like one of those things that is just like so bananas and we're going to like laugh at in a year or two as well. That we're like, oh, please, outdoor dining in 30 degree weather. Finally. Like, perfect. It's fine. But it does go to show you get used to anything and everything, right? Like, the fact that we just think that's kind of like normal. Yeah. No, I mean, that's what's so crazy is that like I was thinking it was normal. Not only was I thinking it was normal, but I was like, I am so blessed to be able to do this. So crazy. Because, like, think of also, too, like, the times, like, of, like, going out and you're like, ugh, it's, like, too cold tonight. Like, we're so, it's, like, a Friday night. Never again come, like, return to life. Like, if there is a time where someone's like, you want to go out? I'm like, yes, absolutely, immediately. Oh, my God, I'm so convinced. Like, we are actually going to enter the roaring 20s. Like, for real. I mean, I I think people are just about to be so so excited to do anything and everything like I'm just thinking full Great Gatsby vibes you know like just whenever we get through this it's gonna be lit I mean I'm I'm excited to see to see what what happens and I mean this timeline is gonna be interesting we're starting to hear like in the next few months we could potentially have the majority of our population vaccinated and that's huge I mean there are festivals slated for this fall and you're coming to Outside Lands. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. <laughs> Buckle up. Get your flight. Or Coachella. I'm, I at least will like start shopping for outfits. You know, like I'll, I'm always ahead on that. Coachella is, I think, still slated for October. And that is truly my happy place. So I'm sure like whenever I'm able to go back to Coachella, it will be like, I don't know if I'll be able to come back. There are you at Coachella. Because I already go into like deep depressions after I leave. Coachella every time I go so I can't even imagine after like COVID and then so excited for Coachella living it up and then I'm just like that that week after is gonna be so miserable but it'll be worth it no we just have to plan something also fun the week after okay maybe we go straight to Vegas it's the only solution it's like the Lady Gaga like plane another plane another club (laughs) that's literally gonna be my life yeah I just need I need to chill I need to wait I need to be patient it's not over yet it's not over. You're very good at humbling me on just not getting too excited about anything. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> That's exactly what I'm here for. I'm so glad I could play this role. I, I appreciate you. See, we balance each other so well. Exactly. Yang and yang, you know? Yeah, totally. Should we get into this this episode, introduce our guest? We have another amazing guest. 
Abdul Henderson. But I had the pleasure of working with Abdul on Tom Sire's campaign. Shocker, another Tom Sire alum on his show. But we're just like an elite squad, you know? So we got to get everyone on here. But Abdul has such an insane resume. Like me and Sam were both just blown away by all the amazing things he's done. I mean, he was a Marine. He was the Director of International Affairs at the Department of Veterans Affairs. He has worked as an executive director on the Congressional Black Caucus, which we'll talk all about. He is also the deputy campaign manager for Tom Steyer's presidential campaign. So he's also in Fahrenheit 9-11 with Michael Moore. Like this guy, he's amazing. And we're so excited to have him on and talk about the Congressional Black Caucus, how that works, and all things veterans, which we have yet to cover, which we were super excited to talk about. So without further ado, here is Abdul. All right, guys, quick commercial break because we have a question. Are your headphones uncomfortable? Are they dull sounding? Do they die quickly? Because we need you to check out Soul. Their headphones and earphones are built with the latest technology for power, clarity, and comfort. Soul provides the soundtrack to your life to help you keep going. From commuting to hitting the gym, Soul vibes with your daily grind by ensuring you get the highest quality with the best value. With Soul headphones like the S-Fit, the set of secure, comfortable, and wing-shaped locks ensure to stay in your ears. They're small. Bluetooth headphones, you guys, you can get 33 hours of charge with them. So ditch your current headphones and switch to Soul's colorful and comfortable headphones. Use discount code GIRLONTHEGOV to get 10% off your purchase at soulnation.com. We are also running a giveaway on our Instagram right now. We will announce the winners later this week, but go check out our Instagram so you can enter the giveaway to get a free set of soul headphones so check that out but again use discount code girl on the gov to get 10 percent off your purchase at soulnation.com so wow my my journey started whew, almost 30 years ago now 1992 was in high school my junior year was the first campaign i worked on for a uh, woman named uh, diane watson she was a state senator then she was running for LA County Supervisor, Second District. And my dad pulled me into that because I was a knucklehead. Like I was doing things I probably shouldn't have at that time. And he decided that it was time for me to get a broader perspective of, of the world. And so I started working at Vance with him and his friends, some of them that are, are gone now, but they, they gave me my political IQ. They were my mentors. And from there, it just, I, I just fell in love with politics. And so after that, I started working on other campaigns, city council, LA city council, state assembly race. And then, you know, I kind of just jumped in and out because I was still young. And so, but then I guess late nineties, I just tried to decide to join the Marine Corps enlisted in the Marines. And eventually I would get deployed to go to Iraq after, after 9-11. And, and then I was anti-Iraq war, not necessarily anti-war. And so I became an anti-Iraq war activist, doing a lot of work to bring people home. And then I ended up being in uh, Michael Moore's film, Fahrenheit 9-11. And then after that, I worked uh, with him and the Kerry campaign during that cycle. And then obviously 
we didn't win that election, but I ended up working with Campus Progress with the Center for American Progress after that, doing a lot of their get out the vote activities, talking to colleges all around the country, talking to students at different colleges around the country. And then uh, I ended up starting to work for Diane Watson when she became a member of Congress. And I just kind of worked my way up from there. I started off in the district office doing casework and then moved to D.C. and became a legislative aide, the legislative director, chief of staff. And she retired. And then I went on to I went on to serve at the, the VA for several years under two secretaries, Shinseki and Bob McDonald. And then I left and went back to the Hill and I was the executive director of the Congressional Black Caucus until I left DC. Well, I mean, I have so many questions. First, I mean, I was very intrigued when you said you were, you became an anti-Iraq activist, but like what triggered you to do that and from your experiences and what kind of activism you did when you got back? What triggered that, I was against the Iraq war before it started. So, you know, the, the lead up to the war after 9-11, you know, President, then President Bush was saying that Iraq posed an imminent threat to the United States. And I just could, I didn't believe it. I was just like, well, how can they be an imminent threat when they have no control over their own airspace in the, the northern and southern no-fly zones? They, have some of, they had some of the toughest sanctions imposed on them. They had no rebuilt military after the, the first Gulf War, after we, the U.S. removed them from Kuwait. So it, it just didn't smell the, pass the smell test. And so when I actually got there, you really saw how much BS it really was. And so, you know, having to do what, you know, we did, at least for me, what I participated in, it just, I was upset about that. And so that led me to, well, I started writing Congresswoman Watson at the time. It's like, man, we, we shouldn't be here. This is bad. Like, like our first objective was secured on securing the oil fields, et cetera. I was just like, the British really don't want to be here. They're not taking any, any lead in any operations. They're definitely here in the support element. Like there were so many things that were just going on that really showed you that this was it was not the right thing to do. So after that, I came back. I ended up doing some some participating in a, a issue forum on Capitol Hill called Military Families Speak Out Against the War in Iraq. And that got picked up on C-SPAN. And so that's actually how I ended up meeting Michael Moore and agreeing to participate in his film. And then, you know, everything else kind of just followed, you know, doing peace marches and things like that and just encouraging people to become more civically engaged and more importantly, getting out to vote. So that's, that was kind of the activities that I was involved in. Yeah. Wow. I feel like that's such a, a topic that we need to dive into further and talk more about. I think we could probably do an entire episode just talking about that, but we do want to talk about some of the other things that you've mentioned. I mean, also on your resume. So you also mentioned that you were the executive director at the Congressional Black Caucus. So that is something we'd love to learn more about. What was that role? What was that like? What did it all entail? Yeah, <laughs> being executive director to CBC, it was probably one of the most challenging jobs I've ever had. I remember when I first when I first got appointed to that 
position. I remember one of my friends was like, congratulations, you just accepted the most thankless job in DC. Oh my God. <laughs> and, and to some degree, it was, that had some bearing to it, but it, it was, it was a lot of good work that we, we did on behalf of America. What it entails is that the Congressional Black Caucus is one of the, the oldest caucuses in, in Congress formed in the early 70s. At the time, when I was the ED, it, they had uh, 48 members, which at that time, that was the largest caucus, you know, members in, in the caucus at that time. Now I think they're up to like 54, 56, something like that. So it's steadily growing, which is great. It shows that, you know, just the past few cycles, they've done good work and I'm glad that I was able to be a part of that. But primarily what they do is focus on issues impacting the African-American community. Caucuses are a little bit different. You have to be a member of Congress to be a part of uh, a congressional caucus. It's primarily made up of, of African-Americans that are in Congress. They have this like an executive board, but they call them the executive committee. They've Back then it was about five, but I think they've expanded to about seven or eight people on the executive committee. And basically you just try to help the members decide on what their policy priorities are going to be for a particular Congress. And generally they revolve around social justice, voting rights, you know, anti-discrimination laws, things like that. And so, you know, it, it was challenging because it's just, it's, they members come from everywhere from around the country. You have members from California, from New York, from Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, Texas, Alabama, Louisiana, Ohio, Minnesota, Wisconsin. Like, so you have a lot of folks that have very different policy agendas based upon their where they're from. So trying to get them to agree and settle on prior issue areas is, you know, that was my job was to help facilitate that and then and then help the chairman lead the caucus through, you know, two years as while that person is chair. So it was fun. Like it, it's it's a very <laughs> dynamic job. A uh, lot of late nights, a lot of weekends, lots of travel. It, it's almost, in a way, it's almost like presidential campaign, but it's just legislative work. Yeah, it's, and constant, probably. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's constant. And it is never ending. And it, it especially when you're in the House. So members of the caucus, you know, at that time, Cory Booker, who was at the time was the only senator that was part of the caucus. And so now I believe they have, you know, two senators. First, it was Corey and Senator Harris when she was a senator, and then now she's vice president. And then now Senator Warnock, I'm pretty sure he's a member of the caucus too. So they have two senators and everyone else is from the House. So it is bicameral. So it's inclusive to, to both chambers. And it's it's a lot of work. It's It's rewarding when you actually see stuff get done, but it sucks to be in the minority, which we were in the minority at the time. It's better to be in the majority because you can actually push through an agenda much. It's, it's a little bit easier. I'm not going to say it, it, it is easy, but it's definitely, you don't have to go through so many hurdles. And then there's a lot of things that, that the majority party would, you know, they could just railroad what you're trying to do. So you end up compromising. So the ability to negotiate 
becomes really prevalent when you're in a minority. You have to be a world-class negotiator to get things done without giving up your position. Which is interesting too, that it's like you're negotiating within your own party, within your own group first, before you can even negotiate yeah, exactly. externally, get all of your ducks in a row, which I think is the perfect segue to our next segment, which is, I have a stupid question. So just to start off real basic here, what is a caucus? I know we kind of dived in here, but what is it base term? Yeah, so for a congressional caucus, all it is is just members of Congress that get together around a specific issue. There's hundreds of caucuses on the Hill. You know, some of the ones that most people know you have the Congressional Hispanic Caucus, the Congressional Black Caucus. You have like the caucus on women and girls. Like members can form a caucus on whatever they want to talk about. Like uh, when I worked for Diane Watson, she was chair of the entertainment caucus. So we worked a lot with the entertainment industry on intellectual property rights and things of that nature. So you can form a caucus almost on any issue, immigration, defense, human trafficking, there's almost any caucus in. Some caucuses are open to, to whoever wants to join. Some are bipartisan, some are not, uh, depending on which, which issue it is. The CBC in particular, they don't have any white members. So it's predominantly African-American. Interesting enough, there's several CBC members who recognize to be one or more races. So yeah. Yeah. And how does it function? How does a caucus work for those who don't know? Like, And what is really a caucus's goal at the end of the day? So how does, it's a good question. It all depends on how their, their executive committee board sets them out to function. I can only speak to how the CBC was, was structured. And so the CBC was structured to focus on issues that impacted the African-American community. And it was formed that, you know, they would have an executive committee that would then work with, you know, the other members in their offices to get their priority issues done, things on anti-housing discrimination, you know, education, funding for education. They had other sub-working groups that would focus on like Africa, Latin America, the Caribbean, East Asia, like they pretty much had every issue covered, but there were, there were but the prim primarily were the big ticket idols with voting rights anti-discrimination, equality for everybody, fair housing, things like that. Would you, I guess, craft legislation or is it like more of a lobbying arm? You weren't an elected official, right? So how, how does your role come into it too, or your former role? So that's a great question. So I was a staffer, essentially. So I worked at the pleasure of the chairman and I was not an elected official. So I my team was, was only about four people. So me, I had a policy director, uh, a comms director, and had a, a person who specialized in like member services, external affairs. And then we had a couple fellows and an intern that supported what, what we did. And so primarily in order to, to, to function, the CBC is just one aspect. There are external sister organizations, as I would call them, that, that also support the CBC, but from an external point of view. So they have the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation, which is essentially a, a think tank. They have the Congressional Black Caucus Institute, 
which is uh, an organization that does, it's a 501c4 that does a lot of political advocacy and, and work. And they actually have a, a policy institute that trains uh, aspiring young people that want to become elected officials. And so they, they do a, a policy training on, on, on that. And then we, they had the Congressional Black Caucus PAC, which raises a great deal of money to support CBC members or other members, other candidates that, you know, are seeking uh, national office. And so th those other organizations are external to the official duties, but each of those boards is usually chaired by an active member of the CBC. So the foundation every year would host an annual legislative con conference in D.C. for about a week and thousands of people from around the U.S. would come and, and learn about some of the priority issue areas that members are focusing on, et cetera. The, the institute would have uh, a few meetings throughout the U.S. working with external partners to work on achieving its legislative priorities. And the pack is just totally political. So a lot of puzzle pieces. Oh yeah, it's a very it's a very complex organization. Like you know, that's why I say it's a twenty four seven job because there's the official business that we would have to conduct, and then there's a lot of non official business that I would have to do on my own time because you can't mix the two. So there's a lot of off hour stuff, a lot of external meetings off the hill because you can't do any political activity on campuses that as they would call it, so basically on the capitol hill complex so it was it was very interesting crazy it's it it's very crazy that's why i got all this gray hair now i mean yeah just on the go constantly i mean we also haven't even mentioned the fact that you are we keep having tom steyer alums on the show right right and right. so you also worked on on his campaign was he the only like presidential campaign you worked on or so no uh, so this his campaign was the fourth presidential but i was working at his camp that was the highest level that i worked at so i was tom's deputy campaign manager so that was the highest level role that I've had in a presidential campaign. How was that for you? It was berserk. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it, and I say, and I say that in all love, it's just that starting a presidential campaign late, there are no pluses to that. By the time Tom announced, I want to say it was July, that he announced that he was going to run for president. Everyone else has a seven month, it's a seven month gap, like everybody else has. They're, they're more established in the early states like Iowa and New Hampshire and South Carolina. We were walking into a net deficit, deficit, especially in name ID. So in order to build out a competitive field program, you know, we had to really go fast. You know, the, the saying is, is that you have to, to, to build the plane while you're flying at the same time. In reality, that's impossible. So we were, you know, we were tasked with an impossible task, but you know, we, we did what we did. We got him on the debate stages, which those rules changed constantly from month to month. And despite that, most people didn't know who he was. We putty on the world stage. Now people know who he is. They know what he stands for and he is having impact. And that's, in the end, that's what you want to have. And this message got out there. And I was proud to work on his team because he's a great guy. Definitely. And also speaking of like past campaigns, I know you mentioned John Kerry's as well. 
What was that like? What was your role there? I'm just curious. During that, that 04 cycle, I, I did some work with Kerry. I didn't work directly for him. Did a lot of support on some veteran initiatives. But mainly I was working with Michael Moore on this, on this what he called Slacker Uprising tour he did, which was to tour like 30 some odd cities in like a couple weeks doing get out the vote stuff. So I did that with him, worked Obama 08 in Virginia, doing some volunteer work in Southern Virginia, worked in conjunction with the Hillary campaign in, in 16 while I was with the CBC and the chairman. So a lot of non-official that was another crazy time doing a lot of things late into the evening <laughs> at home. Were you like keeping the coffee industry alive? <laughs> Red Bull? Like what was your drink of choice here? No, actually my drink of choice is green tea. I'm not really a big coffee drinker. So lots of tea, lots of ginger. I'm big on ginger tea. And what was your go-to liquor on the campaign too? I forgot. <laughs> yeah, I did have like a little bar at my desk. I don't know if you remember. <laughs> You did. You had all the fixings for sure. Yeah, I went whiskey that one. <laughs> it's it's necessary 100% in that job. But amazing. Well, we want to move on to to talking more about the VA and Veterans Affairs and all of that. So, you know, we actually really haven't even covered this topic or just the topic of veterans in general. So we're super excited to talk about it. But to start, like, again, with just the very basics, like what does the department of the Veterans Affairs do. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up veterans issues into the discussion because it's one of those things that doesn't get talked about a lot. So the VA is is charged with you know providing care for veterans. The VA is essentially comprised of three business lines. So you have VHA, which is the Veterans Health Administration, which is charged with providing, they basically run all the healthcare facilities. You have VBA, which is the Veterans Benefits Administrations, which is responsible for providing all the, the, the compensation, pension, uh, a lot of the, the benefits in relation to GI Bill, et cetera. Those are some of the, the real big ticket ones. The, the home loan, VA home loan program that's under VBA. And then the third business line is what a lot of people don't know about is NCA, which is the National Cemeteries Administration, which runs the, a lot of the national cemeteries. They work a lot in, con in conjunction with the states because a lot of states have state-run veteran cemeteries, but the VA does a, a great deal. It's the second largest agency in the cabinet. It's one of the most complex. The VA is the largest integrated healthcare system in the United States. Unfortunately, the VA gets the bad rap, unfortunately. So when I used to work in Congress, the VA military issues were part of my portfolio, naturally, since I'm a, I'm a combat vet and, and, and veteran. I used to look at it from an oversight lens, thinking I knew something about the, the agency. But when I actually worked there, and I was just like, oh, I realized I didn't know pretty much anything about the complexities and how certain laws that are passed actually impact what the agency is trying to do. So once you get inside, you kind of get a much bigger picture of what's happening. And so the one unfortunate thing is that because it's a government agency, everything can become public. And so a lot of the issues are 
you know, front and center on the news. But I would argue that if you if you took the you know private healthcare, state run facilities, if you compared their problems to to VAs, you they would probably be about the same. Because you know a lot of private hospitals they don't say they don't settle their their issues in public. They're done privately, and <laughs> NDAs are signed when when they do settlements with you know malpractice lawsuits, et cetera, where the VA doesn't have that ability because you know it's public because it takes just as long in some cases to wait for a private doctor for a specialty appointment as it would you know, in the government. But the VA is, is, has been on the front lines of a lot of advanced medicine, a uh, great deal of the research that comes in, that ends up coming into, and nationally comes out of VA, especially in, in the TBI, a lot of prosthetics, a lot of that came from VA. They, it's, it's amazing what they do. And, and unfortunately, a lot of people get bad raps for, you know, just, the wheels of bureaucracy moving slow because it is a very bureaucratic agency. Like I feel for Dennis McDonough, who is now becoming, who is now the secretary, because it's just like, I've seen that agency chew its leaders up. Like people always try to say every administration is not doing enough for veterans, but from the time of George Bush, you saw the, the VA budget doubled in in, in eight years, it went from 75 billion to about 150 billion. So it's not that it's, you know, people aren't taking it seriously. It's just a matter of, it's, it's just a tough thing to do because a lot of people don't know about benefits. A lot of veterans don't utilize benefits. And, and then when you take a, a program, especially the biggest challenges in rural areas, is like, how do you connect with veterans in rural areas? But even with that, like the VA, champion and expanded the use of electronic medical records. That's all VA. Telehealth, a lot of that is VA to, to reach out to do appointments. And I can, I can guarantee you in a pandemic era, if they did not implement this technology 10 years ago, like imagine not having telehealth now. Right. But I think you bring up an interesting point of like the budget and it doubling and being increased. But where does that money come from? Like, is that a congressional decision? Is that an internal decision? Where's the funding come from? Oh, that comes from Congress. This is appropriated through Congress. Mm -hmm. So all that money it comes comes through there. Does the VA ever create policy or just enact it? Like, what are some of those responsibilities? So that's a good question. Generally, the from what I understand, the VA can work in conjunction with the White House and with congressional leaders on policy. They aren't the creators of policy. Usually that is done at the, at the, the, the White House Ledge Affairs Office in conjunction with the, the VA committees of the House and the Senate. And they're the ones that actually craft the language. There's uh, each member office, you know, usually writes their own legislations or works with CRS to, to write legislation. Yeah, for sure. Well, I have so many questions. I mean, you did start talking about the VA getting a bad rap. I think there's a few you know, obvious reasons why there's, you know, barriers to health care. There's major mental health issues amongst veterans. There's obviously a lot of homelessness. A big portion of our homeless in this country are veterans. And so why, why does this happen? Why um, are veterans struggling so much? And what can we do to fix that? 
especially looking at it with the lens of how the VA functions? It's, it, it's several possibilities. And I, I would use this one, one that I, I would hear a lot, and it really makes a lot of sense. So if you look at issues like suicide, right, issues relating around mental health. So when I was at VA, suicide was was in the top four causes of death among age groups, the from 18 to 24, 25 to like 36, and then, you know, 37 to mid 40s, and then 45 plus, right. And so within those groups, you know, suicide was within the top four. So just imagine from 18 to 24, you're recruiting people with already pre-existing health conditions, right? Since since mental health or suicide is is in the top four causes a death group. So then you they join the military and then, you know, God forbid they get deployed, go to war and see some of the most horrific things in human existence that you can actually see and, and hear, right? And then you put them back in, you know, regular society or back in their unit and you try to tell them to function as if they were that previous person they were prior to being deployed. And so it's so it's a, it's a powder keg. And so if if early on, like, say I can give this as an example for myself as someone who, who suffered from PTS after coming back from Iraq is is that in the beginning and early on in conflicts, there's not a lot of infrastructure that is built out for, for you to deal with issues. And it, it took several years to get it really up and running. And so you kind of just sit around and you're like, you're either dealing with anger or sadness or regret. And constantly, if you're having sleep deprivation, insomnia, like, and then a lot of us just, you know, I'm not sure how this works out for women, but at least as I can speak as a man is that men, we don't talk about our issues uh, a lot. So that tends us to self-medicate in, in some instances. And so a lot of people that are, are, are homeless, not only do they have pre-existing mental health issues, they start down the path with drugs and alcohol, which causes, you know, a myriad of other health related issues, but only causes, at least from a mental health standpoint, it causes more depression. So, you know, it's, 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 it's so many things. Um, but I will say that at least in, in my time there and someone that I was critical of VA in the beginning from an oversight perspective, but when I worked there, like I saw the incredible work that, you know, the civilian workforce would do in trying to care for vets. Now, could it be better? Yeah, everything can always be improved, but the intent is is there. It's just a matter of capacity. Because I think right now we're about, I think there's about eight or 9 million vets in the US, but only a, a mere fraction of vets use the VA for healthcare. So we're talking about maybe a million and a half vets actually utilizing services. Why do you think that is? A lot of them just don't use it. Some of them feel as a matter of just like, I don't want a government handout. Some people will look at it that way. Uh, a lot of people just didn't know. I know when I first worked at VA, I, I was working in intergovernmental affairs. My main job was international affairs, but the, the intergovernmental portion was so 
so large because it encompasses governors, mayors, counties, other municipalities. So I had I had mayors and, and counties. While my my other colleague he he dealt with governors, and and so just we we had launched a program where it was all about outreach and getting veterans enrolled. And within that one year, I think we registered like 1 million vets enrolled in VA services. It is just a matter of people just knowing, but a lot of it, you know, means that you gotta work with states. You gotta work with the states that have veteran affairs secretaries. You know, you gotta work with the counties because in the end, a lot of legislation in, 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 in reality is, is implemented in force at the state and county level and at the, the municipal level. And so therefore, you know, you have to work with those, those folks to reach out to their constituencies to make sure that people understand what benefits they have, not only at the state level, but at the federal level. So a lot of it is just lack of knowledge. It's one of those ones, like Maddie and I have found so many conversations we've had. It's like kind of like something that rises its ugly head over and over again is like being able to actually communicate with constituents and get the right information out there in like such a clear way. So it's interesting that that also is a complication here as well. But I just want to circle back to sort of the mental health element. So I feel like maybe maybe this is just the Britney Spears documentary coming out this last week, but I really feel like mental health has become more of a conversation in the last few years. And so I'm just curious internally at the VA if that's sort of become more of a conversation topic and policy matter as well. And like if there's been an increase in programming or initiatives that are happening or were there ones that exi were existing and it's just sort of the status quo, they're ahead of the game, but people just don't really know about it. Yeah, I would say the, their mental health programs are... A1. The U.S. leads just about in, in every category in mental health and programming. So like, for instance, so I was the director of international affairs. So in, in, that, in that role, I was responsible for working with our closest allies, pretty much what they call the five eyes, which are the countries that we share intelligence with. So you're, you're talking Canada, the U.K., Australia, New Zealand in the US make up the five eyes. And so we would have like a, a, a summit every other year with our international partners. Like everyone wants to learn from the VA. What does VA have going on? Like for instance, for example, the minister, the minister of veteran affairs from France, like they're, they're not a five eye country, but they're an ally, of course. He came to meet with Secretary Shinseki. I helped facilitate that. And what he wanted to learn is just like, they had an emerging issue with veteran suicide. They were trying to figure out how can we prevent veteran suicide. And so through the course of the meeting that we had, we brought in all our stakeholders within VA to help them create a program, which was the VA suicide hotline. Most places don't have that. You know, just a number you could call that can put you in touch with a healthcare provider to help you out of a crisis situation. And so, you know, we shared a bunch of information with him, you know, VA subject matter experts work with him. France launched it. And then the following year, the minister came back and he gave a report and he said within the first 90 days, they saved over 300 lives from people calling into that hotline. So, you know, VA is, just doesn't have an impact 
on veterans here at home, it has an international impact. Because like I said, like the VA leads pretty much in everything research wise. And when it comes to regards to healthcare, because it's still, a, it's a health, they're a healthcare provider, but you know, they're dealing with a lot of significant trauma and traumatic injuries because of the type of, you know, where the type of experience that, that former military veterans have. Do you think that then ultimately there's just a misconception that the VA just doesn't do any work, but rather what the reality is, is that it's actually doing a lot and leading in all of these areas. But just the biggest thing is just veterans don't know about the resources that they have. Yeah, you know, it's a highly political agency. You know, no one wants to ever seem like they're not doing enough for veterans. You know, so, but they're, they're doing a lot for veterans is just that it's not a perfect organization. No organization is perfect. They have problems. And whenever something comes out, you know, everything gets, it gets pushed to a level of like, who we're trying to fire today? Because I can tell you from an oversight perspective and just from my experience on the Hill, when uh, Congresswoman Watson used to sit on the oversight committee, when Henry Waxman was chairman, like the goal of some of these hearings were, who can we fire this week? Like, you know, to score political points to say that the Republicans are doing bad. And so when you go when you go into something with that type of mindset, you know, it obviously the problems are going to be bigger than, you know, what they're actually doing good. Because if, if in, in the agency's responsibility, which they, I think they do pretty well, is, is report what they're doing good, but nobody really cares. They only want to care about the problem but they're doing a lot of great work, but do they have problems? Yeah. But are they getting better? Yeah. And then the other issue too is, is that is just finding the people to actually want to come work in the public sector. That's another issue is finding doctors, finding nurses, is just finding people to, to actually do that. Because in some cases it is, in some cases it is, you know, under market pay in consideration to the the private sector, which pays more. But that's definitely a good point to make in terms of just like knowing, okay, well, like, what are those issues that are actually legitimate? And like recruitment and communication are really some of them, not necessarily some of the back end or programming. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Communication is is so key in, in everything that we do. My philosophy when I was in war, when I was in Iraq, it was just like, we, we'll live and die by the way we communicate. If we have bad communication, we're going to be in bad shape. But if we, if we communicate clearly in what we're doing, we should all be able to get out of here in one piece. Yeah. We always like to end on like a good like message, learning lesson. I feel like that's a great one. One that we, we definitely live by too. But I mean, I've loved this conversation. I, I love when we cover topics we've never talk about and this has been definitely eye-opening in a lot of ways we appreciate all your insight this has been amazing thank you for coming on no no my problem is always good to 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 share my experiences and i'm just really proud of you guys taking on the 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 fight to keep you know people informed of what's going on civically it's that's how our republic is going to stay strong and it's how it's going to continue And so I appreciate you guys for doing that. Yeah, it's that communication. There we go. But is there anything, I mean, we talked the other day, but is there anything like you're working on or what's new with you for 
for anyone listening who's like, what's this guy doing now? He's busybody. Yeah. So, you know, for folks that don't know, I've, I've relocated back to Georgia. And so I'm calling Georgia home. I'm sticking a, a flag in the ground because I'm tired of moving. I moved seven times in five years. Oh my God. Yeah. Oh my God is right. Yeah. So no more moving for me. Well, every time I say I'm not going to do something, I end up doing it. Yeah. You're like, we'll see actually. So I don't plan on moving again, but I'm just getting involved here locally. Actually, I'm a co-chair of a state budget policy team for the DeKalb County Democrats. And so working on some state budget stuff, I'm also part of their voting rights policy team because there's going to be the Republicans are going to really be pushing some very strong anti or voter suppression activities to try to cut down turnout for the next governor's election. Like the Republicans in in Georgia have already created a pack to go against Stacey Abrams because all everyone anticipates that Miss Abrams will run for governor again. And if they use the template that they use for the all soft and war not victory, Republicans are going to really have their hands full if we can continue to turn out Democratic voters as as we did this last this last cycle. So it's a lot of good work that I'm going to try to stay involved in down here and lend a, a helping hand to, to make sure Georgia stays blue. Georgia is the place to be right now, for sure. <laughs> right. So we just we got to get those wins down ballot, you know, starting with the governor's mansion and start working on these state houses. That's the goal. Yes. Love that. If you need any help from us, like girl on the gov, spread the word about anything. We got you. All right. I appreciate that. Thank you for coming on. This has been amazing. Yeah, yeah. Always a pleasure. To start, our top story of the week. I mean, we finally made it through this impeachment trial. And to no surprise, really, Trump was acquitted. So that means he he got off. They didn't impeach him. So Donald Trump was acquitted on Saturday, you know, of inciting that horrific attack on our Capitol. And so this concluded a very historic impeachment trial that spared him his first ever conviction of a current or former U.S. president. So just in a, like another recap, I feel like we've talked about impeachment so much on this show already, which is crazy. But we have never fully convicted a president before. And this was maybe a shot that we would. So technically, like no president has ever made it through both being impeached in the House and the Senate. But basically what went down, the Senate convened for like a rare weekend session to deliver the verdict. And they were actually voting while, you know, armed National Guard troops continue to stand on their posts outside of the Capitol because, you know, there's still kind of this imminent threat of what happened on January 6th, which is just kind of ironic. But basically, the verdict was a vote of 57 to 43. So actually, 57 senators voted to convict Donald Trump. So technically, it was a winning vote. They just didn't reach the majority of the votes that they needed. This was also the most bipartisan vote on an impeachment in the Senate ever, but not enough to fully convict him. So... Basically, seven Republicans joined all Democrats to convict, but it, again, was far short of the two-third threshold required. So two-thirds of the Senate was required to impeach him. But, you know, Trump right after was just trolling his way and, of course, had to make just like a petty statement that his movement has only just begun. And, you know, he slammed the trial as yet another phase of the greatest witch hunt in the history of our country. I just would like 
like to say that I think the witches of the Salem witch trial may have a serious bone to pick with it. They may raise back from the dead and do a little haunting if I were them. I stand with witches. I have my crystals and my sage. I stand with witches, okay? <laughs> what do you think of this is? We love it. I'm literally so obsessed with my crystals, by the way. Oh, wow. You're next level. No, but I just got them. Me and my best friend just got them in New York. So they're my first two crystals. And I just like, I just love them. They bring me so much happiness. The lady in the store was like, just pick ones that speak to you. And I was like, okay. And then I did, I found them. They're my babies. But nevertheless, back to this impeachment trial. Although he was acquitted for like the sole charge of inciting this insurrection, it was e easily the largest number of senators to ever vote to find a president of their own party guilty of an impeachment on counts of high crime and misdemeanors. So I thought it was important to highlight the names of those who did vote to impeach Trump on the right. We have GOP senators Richard Burr of North Carolina, Bill Casty of Louisiana, Susan Collins of Maine, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, Mitt Romney of Utah, shout out Mitt, <laughs> Hotty. Ben Sauce of Nebraska, and Patrick Toomey of Pennsylvania. And before we move on, I really want to, I'm done with this, but once we, I just need to comment that even after voting to acquit, the Republican leader Mitch McConnell condemned the former president as practically and morally responsible for the insurrection. So he's just like still, you know, talking about how much he condemns Trump for this, yet he voted to acquit him. So it's just like, Mitch, you, you know, take two steps forward and like 70 steps back. It's just, he's really breaking my heart. It really is. Like, I'm like worried for you. Like, this is like, it's, he's no longer Cocklock McConnell. He's like fuckboy McConnell. Like, he's got some. No, he's such a fuckboy. He's literally the definition of a fuckboy. Not with that face. <laughs> Someone's gonna at me for that. <laughs> no. It's so weird. I'm just like such an empath. I'm like, I feel bad for Mitch McConnell, but I'm like, no, no. I don't feel bad. See, this is why we're yin and yang. Because I've got no feelings or emotions in that direction. But I appreciate you. It's the East Coast, West Coast, you know, dynamics here. I'm just like, ELE, everyone love everyone. And then you're like, New York, you're like, get the fuck out of my way. <laughs> but it's okay. Kind of a lot has been happening since the impeachment. We have a lot of post-acquittal news here. Sam, you wanna, you wanna take the reins on this one? Yeah, let me hold on. Let me saddle up. Excuse me, I get the horses out of the barn here. So, just start everything off. So, the House Homeland Security Chairman accused Donald Trump in a federal lawsuit Tuesday of inciting the deadly insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. Surprising, shocking, not at all. But again, we've got some some more, you know, traction. So, anyways, the lawsuit from Democratic Rep. Benny Thompson is a part of an unexpected wave of litigation over the January 6th riot and is believed to be the first filed by a member of Congress. It seeks unspecified punitive damages. It also names defendants such as Rudy Giuliani, also known as Drip Drip, Trump's personal lawyer, and the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, which are extremist organizations that have had members charged by the Justice Department with taking part in the siege. 
The case against Trump was brought under a provision of the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871, which was passed in response to KKK violence and prohibits violence or intimidation meant to prevent Congress or other federal officials from carrying out their constitutional duties. Shocking, by the way, like the fact that this in 2021 is having to just be resurfaced is really dark and really scary. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, 1871, we were in, like, hoop skirts. I mean, the, but the fact that we have to, you know, look back um, at, at this provision that literally, again, 1871, the Ku Klux Klan literally trying to obstruct our government from functioning due to their racist and white supremacist ideals. Like, that's just happened last month. It just, it's crazy. It's crazy. And that acquittal is likely to open the door to fresh legal scrutiny over Trump's actions before and during the siege. Additional suits could be brought by other members of Congress or by law enforcement officers injured while responding to the riot. Even some Republicans who voted to acquit Trump on Saturday acknowledged that the more proper venue to deal with Trump was in the courts, especially now that he has left the White House and lost certain legal protections that shielded him as president. So Trump faces more fallout from the unrest, including this lawsuit. But his biggest legal problems might be the ones that go much further back. So, obviously, we're going to do a little dalliance into some of these criminal investigations. Let's just talk old actions, new investigations. Well, I just, like, remember when we manifested in our 2020 episode of who is most likely to end up in jail in 2021? While he did just get acquitted for impeachment... There are many criminal and civil investigations against him happening as we speak. He's also being sued. So we're going to dive into kind of some of those right now because there's a list, (laughs) which is wild. But to start with, like, the good old criminal investigations Trump is facing. So Atlanta prosecutors opened a criminal investigation into whether Trump attempted to overturn his election loss in Georgia So I don't know if y'all remember January 2nd, there was this like infamous phone call that went public and got leaked of Trump basically telling the secretary of state, Brad Raffensperger, which again, just a refresher, like the secretary of state handles how, you know, voting in election day is run in a state. So he literally called the secretary of state in Georgia and asked him to find enough votes to reverse Biden's narrow victory. Yeah, so when that happened, it was clear that this was gonna end up biting him in the ass, especially since he had lost the election and is losing you know, that presidential comfort blanket of not being investigated on these things and not being prosecuted potentially. So that's number one. And secondly, well, first I wanna call out you for saying y'all in relation to Georgia, because that is excellent. Thank you. I actually been saying y'all a lot lately. I enjoy it. I see this for you. I like it. It's fun. Thank you. No, I love it. I love it. And we also love these investigations. So for the second one, Carl Racine, the attorney general for DC, has said district prosecutors could charge Trump under local law that criminalizes statements that motivate people to violence. But the charge would be a low-level misdemeanor with a maximum sentence of six months in jail. I mean, like... I'll take it. I'll take it. I'll take it. Oh, I want to see the guy in orange, like orange on orange. Yeah, I want to see him matching head to toe. But another one on this list is Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus R. Vance Jr. Okay, 
A Democrat is in the midst of an 18-month criminal investigation focusing in part on the hush money payments that were paid to women on Trump's behalf and whether Trump or his businesses manipulated the value of assets, inflating them in some cases and minimizing them in others to gain a favorable loan terms and tax benefits. So a few things there, but there's also like, geez, I don't even know how many he had. Too many fucking sexual assault allegations and was also, he was basically found to be giving little hush money payments to these women. So criminal investigation there, thank God. But moving on, we have also a civil investigation happening with New York Attorney General Letitia James. Civil investigation focuses on some of the same issues as Vance's criminal probe, including possible property value manipulation and tax write-offs for Trump's company, the Trump Organization. And so they claimed on millions of dollars in consulting fees it paid including money that went to trump's daughter ivanka so we all know you know the taxes thing is sketchy he won't he wouldn't release them we know why that's being investigated as well and you know what we love a good tbt so of course we're revisiting the russia probe right so the justice department under attorney general nominee merrick garland could still pursue matters left uncharged in special counsel robert mueller's investigation into russian interference in the 2016 election so this thing just keeps it's the gift that keeps on giving right so mueller's report included multiple accusations of trump obstructing justice including firing fbi director james comey over his unwillingness to say trump is not personally under investigation pressuring Comey to end an investigation into Trump's national security advisor, Michael Flynn, oh, TBT to that guy, and instructing his White House counsel to have Mueller removed amid media reports that his team was investigating whether Trump had obstructed justice. So, hmm, spicy. And there's more because there is a lawsuit. Summer Zervos, who is suing Trump for calling her a liar after she accused him of sexually assaulting her in 2007. She asked New York State's highest court last week to dismiss an appeal from Trump that had put the case on hold. So the appeal had argued that a sitting president can't be sued in a state court, even for fucking sexual assault. But now that he's out of office, quote unquote, the issues presented have become moot, which I just like had to say that word because I was like, I never heard it before, but... Legal term, meaning open to question. So they're questioning now his appeal since he is no longer in office. And it's just, it's interesting to see all of this happening. I mean, it was like, we're waiting for him to leave office for all of these criminal investigations. And then we had to kind of like wait for the impeachment to see what happened there. And so now they're all kind of flooding in and it will be interesting to see how they all play out. But kind of the other thing, the Senate impeachment trial is behind us. COVID-19 relief is now set to become, you know, the dominant issue in Washington again, as Democrats work to advance key parts of President Joe Biden's $1.9 trillion stimulus proposal. So House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said during her news conference last week that she wants the package passed in the House by the end of February and on the president's desk before March 14th when some unemployment benefits are set to expire. Pelosi can only afford to lose five Democrats in the process. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer of New York can't lose a single member on his side for this to happen. So what's in this bill again? Little refresher, bigger stimulus checks, more aid for the unemployed, the hungry, and those facing eviction, additional support for small businesses, states, and local governments, increased funding for vaccinations and testing. So I would say like some important things, you know, just yeah, a few little details. But anyways, the building of the COVID-19 relief bill in the coming weeks will ultimately have a large impact on the president's early legacy. It's at the tone of how he plans to operate moving forward. So there's a lot at stake on so many levels from optics to actual like 
you know, the results of things related to COVID and employment and whatnot. So we have a lot to see there, but you know, let's not say anything to the fat lady sings, to the rainfalls or to the snow hits Texas. That was so good. I loved that transition. Thank you. <laughs> well, I was kind of thinking like, maybe we start a weather channel segment because this story was important to me. I've already been, you know, just venting to Sam about it. This story is important because it is just literal climate change happening right in front of our faces. And so, you know, I think we maybe should start a weather channel segment to highlight these historic weather moments that ultimately show us and highlight the effects of climate change. I mean, I look like there's some jobs that I really wanted in preschool. Male woman was one of them. Weather lady also on there. Freaking love twister. Great movie. Love a good storm chase moment. So I think just for that alone, I mean, I'm D I'm totally down for this. No, but basically just to like highlight this story. I mean, we've been seeing it that millions are enduring record cold temperatures and weather without power and there are at least 14 dead right now so a winter storm that has left millions without power which is just like wild too it's like a winter storm at that not just like any rainstorm this is a winter storm where you literally need power to survive so this has left millions without power in record-breaking cold weather that has claimed more lives tuesday including three people found dead after a tornado actually hit a seaside town in north carolina and four family members who perished in a Houston area house fire while using a fireplace to stay warm, which is just like... So sad. I mean, that is just so dark. Like, that is climate change. That is what we can expect is shit like that, of like doing everything you can to literally stay warm amidst like a weather crisis that ultimately something devastating like that can happen it's just wild but basically the storm that overwhelmed power grids and immobilized the southern plains carried heavy snow and freezing rain into new england and like down to the deep south and left behind painfully low temperatures wind chill warnings actually extended from canada into mexico yeah i mean it was literally it was 18 degrees in alaska and it was five degrees in texas like insane levels of records like nothing before and the way that some of the impacts of these storms are so far reaching and really do dive deep into politics not just on climate change but also well climate change and how these different states are looking to solve or not solve through policy right so you look at texas 43 percent or so of their power comes from wind right and so you would think off of that oh the investment in wind therefore they must be good to go in terms of powering their power grids. But because of where they're located, the investment into some of the temperature monitoring and regulating systems that go along with some of these wind turbines were never ordered or added to the systems there. So they're not able to keep up and provide any of the power, right? And that all has to do with who you elect and what they look at in the budget and how they make those decisions. Prioritize, yeah. Totally. And so I think this is on so many levels such a deep issue and when we do do a deep dive in terms of a climate change issue this is definitely going to be one of those examples that we tap on obviously this is really awful and sad if there's any 
ways to you know help out people you know i think this is definitely a moment to do it however if you also want to laugh at some tiktok videos i also highly recommend all of ones of people falling on ice it is really really entertaining but in all seriousness this is just another one of those things too that we're in the midst of this global pandemic and you know trying to get everyone vaccinated and whatnot and here's another thing just sort of getting in the way of that plan yeah i mean just it's scary to see i mean from this storm to the fires like it's all part of this problem but I just, yeah, I think it's important to cover this topic. I think the Weather Channel segment is here to stay. Um, unfortunately, I hope it goes away and we stop having extreme weather. But that's going to have to come with climate policy and people believing in it and working towards fixing it and making it literally the number one priority because that's what it deserves. And just again, yeah, like Sam said, we have yet to cover fully climate change. I think it's like one of the most important topics to us, but we have yet to cover it. But we have a lot planned on that front, especially for April. So stay tuned for that. That's it for today. We have a few housekeeping things. A reminder, we have a giveaway happening this week with Soul Electronics, who have amazing headphones, and we are giving away a free pair. Also, we have a discount code, but you already heard that in this episode. Sam, Rhino Rally, can we give a reminder on Rhino Rally? Yeah, of course. So basically, guys, like this is just like a reminder not just to get involved in the super awesome Progressive Postcard Club, but the fact that you can upgrade your membership, right? So that original tier, $4, one postcard, one stamp, all the, you know, the supplies in terms of getting that message out. But you up yourself to that $16 tier, you get additional rewards, including like really cute pens situation. But most importantly, you get more postcards for you to be able to contact more people and really get out there and all of that. So yeah, basically do a Beyonce upgrade it, you know, but this is like easy activism, right? Like you don't want to go to a protest, totally got you. Like social media, I'm kind of gearing away from it. It's like, seems like a little bit of a scary place. Totally get you. This is activism for introverts. It's perfect activism too for outside of an election. It's also the perfect activism for a pandemic. So definitely get involved. It's just a really cool and like fun way to make change. So go check them out. We'll have all the information in the description for this episode. If you have questions, let us know. But is that it for for this week? I think it is. Oh my God. Okay. Well, that was fun. Oh, I mean, posted a TikTok this week. It's doing all right. It's doing all right. I, I'm really proud of it. I couldn't tell you how genuine it was for me to do this TikTok. I'm not going to say anything else, but I was giddy as hell making this TikTok. So go check it out. And then obviously Twitter, Instagram, you know where to find us. DM us with any questions you have about literally anything. If you just got like broken up with on Valentine's Day, let us know. We want to we wanna know. We want to help you out. <laughs> I hope that didn't happen to anyone. But like we're here, you know, like <laughs> we got you. But that's it for this week. Thank you for listening and we will be talking to you guys next Wednesday. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. 
Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.